that services including complete computer diagnostics, AC repairs, brakes, tune-ups, and other mechanical services. Serving Beaufort County for over 25 years, Kaiser Auto Repair is located at 718 Paris Island Gateway and can be reached at 843-522-2120 or online at kaiserautorepair.com. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. It's an exciting week here at Community Bible Church. Todd Friel, whom you hear on Monday through Friday here at 4 o'clock. He'll be speaking tomorrow night at Community Bible Church. H.B. Charles, one of the great African-American preachers in America. He'll be here Thursday night. Friday night, Dr. Tommy Ice, president of the Pre-Trib Research Association. He'll be Friday night, twice Sunday morning, and a multiplicity of events throughout the week. So I hope you can join us. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for any details. With that said, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge that you have in your life, or you're trying to settle on a theological issue or something of the like. If we can be of help, we'll do the best we can. All you need to do, again, is call us here at 843-525-1859. Or the toll-free number, 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. We do give preference to live callers, so if you want to go on the air live, uh, you can call and dictate your question. Or you can email us, as many do every week, and the email address is TBL for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Well, with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. Very good, Pastor. Uh, George from Beaufort would like to know, can Satan read our minds? Uh, that's a great question. It comes up every once in a while here in the Bible line. Uh, let me just set some parameters. You know, we often say, we, we offer a class on Sunday morning. It's called the Discovery Class. It's a 45-week discipleship course. In in the second session that takes four or five weeks to go through, uh, we deal with sin and the like, and we deal with three enemies that wage war against the believer. Uh, the sin, uh, I mean the, the flesh, uh, the world system, and the devil. So first, let's put some things in some broad perspective. Remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. He's created, though he has millions, millions and millions of of minions, of demons, fallen demons who are organized, just like holy angels are organized, uh, to wage war with the believer. So we wage war not against flesh and blood, simply people, but against powers and principalities, plural, uh, these are fallen angelic beings who rebelled with Satan. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is everywhere, and only God is omniscient. Satan is a created being, but he has an army of demons that can certainly do his bidding. But can he read our minds? Clearly not. Absolutely not. Solomon, I love the prayer Solomon prayed in First Kings 8, 
Uh, if you just want to tune your heart into the Lord sometimes, I, I love that prayer when the prayer of God is dedicated, the, the temple of God is dedicated, and he said, you alone, Lord, know the hearts of the sons of men. Only God knows our thoughts. So what came to my mind here is Psalm 139, and this is a great passage of Scripture that really speaks of God's omnipresence and God's omniscience, so contrary to the evil one. And King David writes, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. Uh, You scrutinize my every path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. So even before I'm about to verbalize something, God knows what we're going to say. He knows the very thought that we're formulating. And of course, Jesus, who's God incarnate, exhibited the same divine attributes. Um, Remember John 2, he didn't uh, reveal himself to some people because he knew what was in each person. So only God himself is omniscient. With that said, I don't think we can dismiss that Satan is a powerful, powerful angelic being. We studied recently the book of Jude, and we looked at Michael the archangel. And Michael the archangel dared not bring rebuke against Satan. He said instead in Jude 1.9, the Lord rebuke you. Um, and so we need to have a respect for Satan because he, he's powered. He has limited power, uh, but he can't read our minds. But look, he's been around in this fallen state for over 6,000 years of recorded human history. And there's no doubt that he's learned a lot in that way, in that time, and even his demons can observe what you are doing. And with that said, uh, no doubt they can probably even take a well-educated guess of what you might do and how you might respond to some temptation. Uh, James, I preached the book of James a couple of years ago, and one of the commands in James is submit, therefore, to the Lord. And God tells us to submit to the Lord before he gives the command, resist the devil, and the promise that's accompanied with it is that he'll flee with you. So he hates you. He's like a lion seeking someone to devour, but he's not all-powerful. And if you're walking in the presence of the Lord, filled with the Spirit, you don't really need to fear him in the sense that he can destroy you any second. His power is limited, but still, he is a real foe, and you need to respect that. Let's go to the next question, Rick. Very good. Don just called in and dictated his question. He says, why in the book of Job did the Lord seem to lead Satan to test Job? Well, uh, there was a little bit of a debate that you can read in Job chapter 1. Uh, Satan basically comes into the presence of the Lord, if you remember, and his basic argument is, yeah, the only reason Job really loves you is because you bought his love, but you take away some of the things that you have given him, and we'll see how much he loves you. So he's really um, you know, undermining the very character of God. Uh, three times, only three times in all of Scripture do you actually hear the voice of Satan. You hear his voice in the Garden of Eden where he slanders God. The next time you actually hear the actual voice and words of Satan is here in Job chapter 1, where he slanders man before God. In, Je- in Genesis, he slanders God before man. In Job, he slanders man before God. 
And the third time you hear his voice is in the temptation where he slanders the God-man. And so, uh, you know, the day comes when uh, Satan comes into the presence of the Lord with some of the B'nai Elohim, uh, some of the sons of God, and the term sons of God is used in two ways in Scripture to refer to holy angels and to folly, fallen angels. And and so Satan comes, it says, from where have you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And, of course, uh, Job comes out sterling. He proves that his love is real and sincere. And God recorded it for us. Job lived during the times of the patriarchs, around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may not know that from where it's placed in our English Bible. It's a little bit clearer in the Hebrew Bible because they have the same books that we have, but the placement is different. But this was a man who really demonstrated that his love of God was sincere. And God recorded what happened to Job for us to read and for us to learn. Uh, Fortunately, Job's one of those books that's often used out of context. Some of Job's friends who give him counsel, and God at the end of the book says, I'm not pleased with the counsel these guys gave you. But what their friends actually say are the very verses that the prosperity theologians often use to uh, prop up some of their false teaching. Good question. Let's go on to the next. Well, Satan must be on some people's minds because... Oh, we got Greg, another one? Yeah. All right. Greg from Florida says, as a Christian, how can I know the difference between God's chastisement and a satanic attack? Thank you for your time and God bless. Well, uh, that's a good question. What's the difference between the chastising hand of God and an attack from Satan? Well, to start, let me just say that Satan's attacks can come in a number of different ways. Uh, remember, there are three forces that wage war against the believer. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes, you know, we say, well, the devil's attacking me. Well, he may not be attacking you directly. Remember, we just noted from the first caller that he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. But he is the one, according to Ephesians chapter 2, he's called the prince of the power of the air who is energizing. And ergo is a Greek word. He's energizing is empowering the world system. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he speaks of the God of this world who has blinded their eyes. It's a small g, but remember when Adam sinned, uh, Romans 5 and verse 12 affirms that we sinned in and with Adam. So we're not really victims. You know, we won't get to heaven and say, Adam, you're a creep, man. We suffered all this heartache because of what you did. No, we're accomplices with Adam. We, we participated in his sin, according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. So Satan crafts a world system around us, and he uses that to lure our fallen sinful natures, na- nature. So sometimes it's not a direct, you know, pointed, fiery arrow from the evil one except that he produces some movie, and maybe he 
does put some thoughts in the heart and mind of some producer that is go- who's going to create a movie watched by millions and millions of people that he'll use to uh, lure your sinful nature. So, again, he works in different ways. He, he can definitely attack directly, but often he just attacks through the world system. And sometimes he doesn't attack at all. James 1 says you're, you're just carried away by your own fallen sinful nature. So you can't say, as Philip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. But remember, when Jesus describes um, Satan, let me turn to a verse. I, I quoted it, I, in fact, uh, uh, in Sunday's sermon. We're doing a series right now on God's prophetic schedule. And we've been looking at the great global reset that will come on three levels, governmentally, religiously, and economically. And of course, in John chapter 8, Jesus said to these unbelieving Pharisees who had only an intellectual belief, they were called disciples earlier in this chapter, not because they were converted. The term disciple, mathetes, just means a learner. And so context determines Is this learner an unbelieving learner or someone who's truly committed their life to Christ? And, of course, he says to these disciples who are unbelieving disciples, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so remember, there comes a point in your life where you are accountable to God, and God can really separate the people across the planet into two categories, those who are called sons of God, children of God, and those that First John also describes in the same breath as children of the devil. And so these are children of the devil. You do the deeds of your father, the devil. He was a liar. You're a liar. We have a lot of people right now leading our country who are liars. They will say one thing, oh, the border is secure, there's no problems, while tens of thousands of people every month are walking right over the border. Oh, we're processing them all. No, there's tens of thousands that are not being processed at all. Oh, you know, abortion is a woman's reproductive right. What else would you expect them to say? They're children of the devil. They're liars and they're murderers. And so the president in the last 10 days has boasted on Twitter that he's going to protect the right of a woman to murder her baby, that he, in essence, has her back. Uh, That's what children of the devil do. And so Satan is a real evil foe with a wicked nature. He's a liar. He's a murderer. And yet, even some of the attacks that he may bring, therefore, are good. How so? Because God allows it. Luther once said the devil is God's devil. What did he mean by that? He was he meant that the devil, in essence, was on a leash. And I underscored that recently in our study with uh, John's revelation that was given to him by Jesus through an angel and how Satan is only permitted and allowed to do what God allows him to do. And yet Romans 8.28 says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So sometimes there are direct attacks. You know, take uh, Joseph's brothers. Did they, was that a satanic attack? Probably was, because Satan has been bent on destroying Israel from its conception. But it could have just been drawn out of their own fallen sinful nature. But again, in, in Genesis 15, 
50 and verse 20, it says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's an illustration of Romans 8, 28, that when we are walking with God, God can work all things together for good. But remember, uh, if you were with me in my series on the book of James, and that is available at searchthescriptures.org, one of the things I do is I contrast in the James 1, it would be around verse 13 sermon, the difference between a trial and a temptation. A trial is allowed by God, and it's for our good. He might even allow the evil one to pull it off. And again, I think some of us think maybe we're bigger than ourselves than we are spiritually, that God allowed a direct attack from Satan on Job's physical goods and physical body was, I think, an exception, but Job was an exceptional man. But either in either case, trials, however they come, they're allowed by God. They're for our good, not to tear us down, but to build up our character. We're a temptation that comes from Satan. That's a solicitation to evil. And so whenever there's a solicitation to evil, you cannot say on the basis of James 1 that that's something that comes from the hand of God because clearly it does not. Trials that come from God, God's discipline, they're designed by him to mature us, to cause us to stand. Uh, The evil one, he creates things for our misery. He wants to cause us to fall, to stumble. God wants to develop us. Satan wants to destroy us. So there's some clear differences. What Satan does, he does out of a heart of evil. What God does, he does out of a heart of love. Those whom the Lord loves, and he's speaking specifically of the children of God, while he loves the world, He has a special affinity for those who are born again. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, John will write, such that we're called children of God. And even Job, who knew these attacks, were coming directly from the hand of Satan. Uh, The wonderful thing is, is that he doesn't blame God. He knew he sinned in and with Adam. He's able to say, I came from my mother's womb naked. I'll return naked. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's written in Job there that it's that Job didn't bring any charge, not one charge against the living God. Anyway, good question. Let's go on to the next. Little little Bible trivia that I'm sure you're familiar okay, with. I'm maybe. in a study of First Samuel and uh, we see periodically throughout the Old Testament someone referred to as a worthless fellow. Yeah, a bnei Elohim is the Hebrew word. That a, actually, a, a son of. Go ahead. Yeah, that, uh, you were right on target. The son of Belial or a son of the devil. So if you ever maybe wanna... that's how we got our term sob. I'm not <laughs> oh, sure. You hadn't thought of anyway, that. Anyway, yeah. All right. We have actually a lot of idioms in 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 the English language because we we're so rooted and a biblical worldview that have come right out of the Scripture into uh, into our English tongue. Anyway, I, yeah, you know, I, we could do a whole thing on that, but it's really sad when you consider how this country uh, named so many of their cities, towns, streets from biblical names. I was thinking about that the other day, Dothan, Alabama, yeah, or right yeah. up the road here, Joppa Road. Yeah, and that's right. You that's ask right. anybody, oh, well, how do you think they came up with that? They wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's this true. Yeah. Well, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Earl from Ridgeland says, good morning, Dr. Brogy. And this is from a few weeks ago. It takes us a while to get through all of these questions. But he says, in your sermon on Sunday, 
several weeks ago, you referenced Act 17 and its teaching against socialism and about national sovereignty. Would you please expound upon that, as I believe all Christians need to have a proper perspective on that in these current times? Thank you. Well, um, Paul is speaking in Acts chapter 17. Let me just turn there for a moment. Uh, he's given a powerful sermon uh, in Athens, and he's, uh, we, we say it's on Mars Hill. Uh, that's one way to describe the physical location he's at. I've stood before on Mars Hill, and it's really kind of a unique place because you're able to look at the religious capital there in uh, Athens, the Pantheon, the business center, and so forth, and just the whole nine yards. And he describes uh, what we are really like. He says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times in the boundaries of their habitation. So God is affirming that he has set boundaries, that he has created nations. Uh, He's made us from one blood. That fundamental truth, of course, is denied in our day that we originate from Adam and Eve. Uh, The evolutionists and even the theistic evolutionists like Tim Keller, who says it really doesn't matter. You can believe in theistic evolution. You cannot and be faithful to the Scripture. So why such a man would call himself an apologist is beyond me because he denies the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. He says that Genesis 1 and 2 have errors in them unless it's poetry. There's no errors at all. He's no apologist at all, and he's done a great disservice to the body of Christ. You have death before sin enters into the world if you have theistic evolution where the Bible is clear that death comes into the world through an act of sin that we committed in and with Adam. And because we are sinful, God created nations and boundaries. He even created languages at one point to make it harder to sin so that there's not a consortium of people who are able to come together and plan together in a single language their evil deeds. So while it may be a frustration at times when you deal with the various languages of the world, as we'll see this week in our missions conference, Um, indeed, it's a blessing of God. So God appointed the times and the boundaries of their habitation. And by the way, God affirms the same truth uh, in the book of um, Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. God reminds four or five times in the Torah that the Jewish people were once aliens, and therefore, because they were once aliens, they themselves should be are respectful of the alien in the land. And yet in, yet in Numbers, God specifically said that the alien would live under the same dictates as the people of Israel, and the people of Israel would live under the same judicial dictates as the alien. And that's an important point because while on the one hand we are to be compassionate And so we have a system by which people can enter the United States. Where did we get that bright idea? Right out of the scriptures itself, where God taught compassion on the alien. Can anyone walk through the door? No. There's a system, just like there was a system in Israel to receive the alien in the land. They couldn't believe or do anything they wanted to. They had to live under the dictates of the theocracy. And so we have a 
an administration that doesn't really care about borders. Ted Cruz says that since our new president has been in office, over 4 million people have walked over the border. It's a huge problem. And so on the one hand, it may be an opportunity for us as Christians to evangelize these people. You cannot have zero border and still have a nation. And so people will come with divergent beliefs and worldviews that will be contrary to the Constitution of the United States that, by the way, is based and rooted in Scripture itself, the very principles by which we were founded, which I think is one of the reasons God was able to bless our country. So we should be compassionate. We should let people in the door, but there's a process, and that's being ignored. And again, as I've dealt with recently in this series on prophecy, when you have groups like the World Economic Forum that is associated with the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and over 100 nations of the leading presidents, prime ministers, and kings all meeting in Davos every year, they don't want borders. Uh, Schwab fundamentally believes that borders are a problem to the problems that we have in the world today, that if we could somehow eradicate borders and become a singular people, same problem all the way back at the Tower of Babel, that everything will be copacetic. Not true. Not true at all. And so I think our president, I mean, it's not by accident that he called his chief piece of legislation, Build Back Better. Where does that term come? Right out of the World Economic Forum. And so they have no regard for the borders. And we think, oh, everything's fine. It's not bothering us here in Beaufort County. Give it a little more time. When people start getting murdered by people who have no moral code, and there's some many, many wonderful people that should be brought into our country, but they have to be brought in legally. But Look, they're, they're, they've opened up the prisons in Venezuela. He emptied them out. Why should we pay for all these prisoners to sustain them when we can send them over the American border? And that's exactly what that evil dictator has done. Now, the second half of your question is not from Acts 17. It's a different question. I think in the same breath I probably mentioned socialism because, again, one of the goals of the World Economic Forum is to move the nations of the world to a socialistic mindset. And so it's uh, against capitalism. But you see, socialism is fundamentally a violation of Scripture itself because the Bible teaches personal property. Even in the Decalogue that's found in two central passages in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the Lord said, thou shall not steal. You can't steal something if everyone owns the same piece of property. In fact, at this last meeting in Davos in May of this year, uh, the WF tweet, tweeted out what they believed would be true by 2030, that no, no one would own anything, but everybody would be as happy as a lark. No, God made us to own personal property. Without it, it removes the work, work ethic, and it's fundamentally part of how God created us in his image. And so even in the New Testament, Paul says, let him who steals, steal no longer. You can't steal from somebody if you own it equally. And so socialism, and and I should say maybe while we're here, that the whole socialistic mindset is growing in America. 51% of of millennials say they are in favor of socialism. That's pretty sad. But again, this is what happens when you abandon Scripture. And then you have these new woke churches, some of which carry the evangelical name, 
that seem to be affirming it. And they use passages like in Acts 4 where it says everything they owned they had in common. Um, And then, of course, it it goes on in Acts 4, um, and it describes in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common uh, property to them. And so they say, here's socialism right here in the Scripture. No, this is not socialism. When you come to Acts chapter 12, it's clear that people still own their own houses. They have a prayer meeting for Peter and James, who had been arrested, um, you know, and they, they're praying for God's grace and protection and mercy over them and uh, because they're in prison. And they meet in someone's house. And so, remember, Peter is released from the prison. Well, James was already gone, but Peter is released from the prison, and they had been praying earnestly for him, and he knocks at the house of Mary and uh, probably, presumably, John Mark's mother. In either case, um, they think it's his angel, but somebody owns a house, and clearly they own their own property, and this is not socialism. It's certainly not communism. What they did, they did voluntarily. It was not by command. It was by a voluntary act of love. Remember the context. Pentecost is unfolding, and people uh, had come for Pentecost by the millions. The city would swell, Josephus says, sometimes as large, depending on the year, between one and two million people. This Pentecost was different from all Pentecosts because on Pentecost itself, the Messiah dies. He's put in the grave on the first day of the fruit of unleavened bread. He is raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And 50 days later, um, on Shavuot or Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes. And so out of the various feasts, seven listed in the Old Testament, four are fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. So the promise of, of Pentecost has now happened, and it's been fleshed out, and nobody wants to leave because this is what they had yearned for and looked for and prayed for, that Messiah would come, and they realized he came. Even though we rejected him and helped crucify him, he was indeed the promised Messiah. And so the needs were great. They wanted to learn from the apostles. They had come in from all across Israel. They had come in from other foreign nations where they had been scattered. And as they come in, uh, they have needs. They run out of money. And so people are selling property. They're bringing the proceeds to the apostles' feet. And those are used to make needs uh, met. So this is not socialism. It's not communism. And what we see happening by the globalistic mentality is erasing the biblical principle of personal property, and it's rooted in evil. It's rooted in the evil one himself. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Ken from Wyndham, Maine, writes, I am checking with you, Pastor, to help me better understand the section of Judges where God is dealing with Gideon. When the angel of the Lord is brought before Gideon, And then it says later that the Lord is speaking directly to Gideon. Since no man can see the face of God and live, what does this mean? Well, let me just give a little context because not everyone might be familiar with this passage. In uh, Judges 6, I've just turned there, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Orpah. And he meets Gideon, who had been beating out wheat there in the wine press and... um, uh, he, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, 
the Lord is with you. And the Lord here is capitalized. It's all caps, meaning Yahweh is with you. Then Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, Gideon does not know at this point that this man is the angel of the Lord. If Yahweh, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord, did not Yahweh bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord Yahweh has abandoned us and given us over into the hands of the Midianites. And so the Lord, this is this man, this angel. And so here's Gideon. He's referring to Yahweh and what God did in delivering them out of Egypt. And then the text says, the Lord, again, Yahweh, looked at him, this man who's called Yahweh, who's called the Lord, and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Of course, he wants a sign, if you remember. Um, And so he went and he prepared, verse 19 says, a young goat of unleavened bread uh, from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay it on this rock and pour out out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw this, and this is your question, verse 22, but I wanted to put it in the context. When, when Gideon saw that, this supernatural act of God, that he was the angel of Yahweh, not just a man, he said, alas, alas, O Lord God, uh, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So the angel of the Lord, it's important. Uh, he appears in a number of places in Genesis and Exodus, especially involved as they're in the wilderness um, during the years of transition before they go into the promised land. Uh, through the time of Joshua, the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua. You remember that? He appears a couple times, um, three times, four times, I think, if I remember in the book of Judges. Most of us at least know Gideon and Samson. He appears to Samson's parents and so on, and and he's called the angel of the of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. And so, how is it that he could see Yahweh? Because he sees him not even as a theophany. Sometimes there would be theophanies of God where people would see God. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God the Father. A Christophany is a visible manifestation of God the Son. And so this is the second member of the Godhead before he incarnated himself and was born physically there in Bethlehem, as the prophet said. And so the angel of the Lord is repeatedly referred to as Yahweh. And so, again, when you look in the English Bible, different translators do it differently, and this is why it might be helpful to read the preface to whatever English translation you're using but sometimes uh, Yahweh is spelled capital G, capital O, capital D, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, to distinguish it from other names from God, from God like Adonai or um, Elohim or so forth. When you study the angel of the Lord, and by the way, if this is something this caller wants to study, where are they calling from? From Maine? 
That is correct. Yeah, if if uh, if this is something you want to study, I did a course on angelology. And so one aspect of angelology, we divide it into two halves, angels that are elect or holy and angels that are fallen or demons. And I walk people through the angel of the Lord. That's a whole lesson. So he's called Yahweh. He possesses the same divine attributes and prerogatives that only Yahweh has. He's often associated in the same text with the Father, again, underscoring the plurality of God in Scripture, yet he's never seen again after the incarnation. Now, it is true in the, I think it's only in the King James Bible, but don't quote me on it. There's a couple places, clearly in the King James, like when the angel of the Lord, as it's rendered in the King James, appears to Joseph in a dream. Um, actually, the article is not there. It's simply an angel of the Lord. So an angel of God appears to Joseph in a dream. And then again, the King James uses the article where it says the angel of the Lord came and rolled away the stone. The New American Standard that is incredibly precise says an angel of the Lord, because again, in the Greek text, no manuscript anywhere is the article present. Why? Because the angel of the Lord never shows up again after the incarnation. You say, well, why did they put the article in? Because when they go from the original language into the receptor tongue, which in our case is English, to smooth it out, to make it read grammatically correct, uh, they, they place it there. But sometimes that can be distracting, and that's why something like the NASB is just a stellar translation in which to use. So Gideon is able to see God face-to-face because he sees a Christophany. Just like we're able to see God the Son literally in a physical body because in the fullest sense, his deity is clothed in humanity. Uh, We would not be able to see God unless somehow the full glory of his person were in some semblance uh, covered in to be able to live. And that's why God the Father and we could add God the Spirit, who have never incarnated themselves in any way, could be seen face-to-face where you could still live. You'd just be exterminated by the holiness of God. Hmm. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sherry called in and asked your opinion on Zach Windall and his two-part one-year Bible study of the Old and New Testaments. Can't say I ever heard of him, so I, I would have to research that. Um, so don't know anything about him. Good question, though. Um, if you bring it up next time, maybe I can go see if he has a website. I'm sure he probably does and and assess it. All right, very good. Uh, Debbie from Cedar Grove, Tennessee writes, I am a member of the Churches of Christ. All my life I attended church services where they had elders. I've moved, and now there's not any elders where I attend. My question is that a scriptural church? I know they can't have elders if no one there is qualified, but still the question is, is it a scriptural church with no elders? Should everyone there go somewhere else that does have elders? Please add chapter and verses, please. Well, your church has elders. It just has a single elder. Um, you, whatever church you're attending, it's a single elder form of government. And so... Interestingly, for instance, most Baptist churches in America 
uh, have a single elder form of government. That was not how they came to America. Uh, the Baptists in America came as English Baptists that had a plurality of elders. Originally, there was like one big Baptist denomination in the country. Uh, they split over the issue of slavery. There was a young man in Alabama who went to the mission board to apply to go overseas as a foreign missionary. And when they discovered that his family had slaves, they said, we cannot allow you to go because you will not be representing the Lord in a full, clean, God-honoring way. So the people in the South said, you mean you'll take our money, but you won't take our sons? And they were pretty irritated over that particular move, and so the Southern Baptist Convention was formed. Now, in fairness to Southern Baptists, they have acknowledged, they have uh, saw that what some of their forefathers did was evil. And it was indeed evil. The Bible never affirms the doctrine of slavery, and that's not to say that all Baptists have, even at their genesis. But with that said, as a uh, split, and with a passion to plant churches, they gravitated from a plurality of elders to a single elder form of government. And today, while Southern Baptists are the largest Baptist denomination in the country, there's about 250 Baptist denominations in the USA. And most of them have a single elder form of government, one elder, and they would argue that um, based on passages like Revelation 2 and 3, where Christ addresses seven churches, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, is the Lord speaking to a literal angel? Clearly not. And so the word angel, like the word deacon, like the word apostle, can be used in a technical sense or a non-technical sense. When we use the word apostle in a technical sense, we are referring to someone who fills the office of apostle. And there are no such men today, uh, but there were certain qualifications that showed you were an apostle. You had to be hand-selected by Christ. You had to have seen the risen Christ. And if he had hand-selected you and chosen you, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. And yet, Epaphroditus is called an apostle. Why? Because the word apostoloi or apostolos in the singular form just means a sent one. And so Epaphroditus was a sent one. Um, and so in that sense, he was an apostle. Uh, we had a Ukrainian brother in our staff meeting this morning. I think we have six or more Ukrainians with us for our world missions conference, over 150 missionaries coming in. If you've just tuned in, Todd Freer will be speaking tomorrow night. You do not want to miss him. Uh, he's on over 1,000 radio stations across America with Wretched Radio. So he will be on t- uh, tomorrow night at 6.30. With that said... In the Ukrainian Bible, um, they just translate the word uh, diaconus as deacon in every context. So when Jesus said, "He that must be, he that would be great among you, must be the deacon of all," uh, that's what it literally says. Now we don't render it that way in the English Bible. We say that he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. Why? Because the translators recognize that this is a non-technical use of the word diaconus, that it's just referring to someone who's a servant versus maybe Titus chapter 1, or or I, I shouldn't say Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 
where he Titus one and in First Timothy three give the qualifications for an elder. First Timothy three gives the qualifications for a deacon. And so there he's speaking in a formal way, and so we translate it as deacon. Now, in other cultures, they have to supply that. Well, the word angel can be re- referred to as a literal angel or can be referred to a person. John the Baptist is called an angelos. His disciples that served under him are called angeloi, plural angels. They're a non-technical usage. And so... Jesus is speaking to the leader of the church, the pastor of the church. He never uses an angel and writes them a letter, and then the angel shows up at Ephesus or Thyatira or Smyrna or Laodicea and says, this is what, you know, no, not at all. That's not what's happening here. He's speaking to what we might call today, to use modern terms, the senior pastor. So most uh, groups that affirm a plurality of elders recognize that there's a leader amongst leaders. Now, in fairness to a lot of Baptists, the deacons end up functioning as uh, elders. I have a church coming down from Charleston today that's looking for some counsel from me, and so the pastor is coming with his whole board of deacons. And those deacons, in essence, function like an elder would. With that said... The scriptural pattern very clearly is a plurality of elders. Uh, Let me give you an example. Acts 20, Paul gathers the elders from the church at Ephesus. Not a single elder, a single pastor, but the elders, plural. Uh, Likewise, for instance, when James is dealing with someone who is uh, sick for the simple reason that they've disobeyed the Lord, he gives some very pointed instructions as to what that individual should do. And so, uh, and that's really the context of calling for the elders of the church and anointing them with uh, the, the sick person with, with oil. But again, clearly here in James chapter 5, he says, let him call for the elders, plural, of the church. He doesn't say the, let him call for the elders of the churches. He doesn't say let him call for the elder of the church, but let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Because in the New Testament, there is a plurality of elders. And so Paul in Philippians writes to the elders, plural, and the deacons that were in Philippi. And really, this is the healthiest model, because when you have a single elder form of government, the potential disaster behind that is that that pastor leaves or maybe he dies or he's disabled and all of a sudden a new pastor comes in and he takes the church in a totally different direction. In some cases, that might be a good thing because the old pastor wasn't doing what he should have been doing. In most cases, that's a disastrous example. Why? Because uh, many times he will take the church down the wrong road. And Paul warned about this to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 about people who would come in from the outside. Sometimes they come in from the inside and they try to draw away disciples, but sometimes they'll come from the outside and take a local assembly down the wrong road. But when you have a group of men who is giving spiritual oversight to that congregation, then you have a better, clearer, more precise biblical model. Now, what is happening right now among Southern Baptists is many of those churches are going back to a plurality of elders. Because there's been some younger men who said, you know, 
let's forget our tradition here for a second. What does the scripture really say? And they're calling people back to a plurality of elders. And that's, that's a good thing. That, that's a healthy thing. But there's an assumption, for instance, when it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And Paul speaks of elders who rule and elders who teach. Again, it's an office that is filled by men. There are no women elders. There's no such thing as the office of pastorate. There's pastors. There's no pastorettes. And so we've created this woke theology that is undermining the very nature of the church, that men and women are equal, but they have different roles. And when you erase those distinctions, you open the door for all kinds of error, including some of the gender issues that we are seeing tearing this nation apart. So obey your leaders, submit to them. They're to rule. That's what the elders to do. You don't vote on everything. I know that may seem very American, but you don't vote on everything. There's supposed to be a body of men who are supposed to be spiritually qualified, and there are 21 verses 23, depending on how you count the qualifications, that must be in place. We're not talking about perfect men, but we're talking of progressing men. Paul said, Timothy, let your progress be seen by all men. And so uh, these are men who have certain things in place uh, that have to be there for them to serve in this office and to rule, and they protect the flock in the process. Let's go ahead to the next question. All right. Abby from Beaufort would like to know what a wife should do when her husband does not lead his family spiritually. Both are Christians. Well, you do everything that you can do to carry out your role without tearing him apart. Um, You are called to respect him. If there is one word, I suppose, that might summarize the husband's role, it's to love. If there's one word or two words that would summarize the wife's role, it's to submit and to respect. So he is still your head. And so sometimes what happens is that you have an unbelieving husband, and Paul and Peter both recognized that you could have mixed marriages, sometimes out of disobedience, and that's the worst thing, when someone knowingly marries an unbeliever, and part of the healing process would be for that wife to confess and to ask for God's forgiveness for that if she married an unbeliever because she was, quote-unquote, in love with him. But very often you will have mixed marriages in Scripture because one is saved and the other is not. And after they got married, there was a conversion that took place. So First Peter, for instance, 3 says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. And so he's talking about the kerygma, um, the, log, the logos, uh, the gospel itself, uh, that they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So one, you're to be chase in your behavior, in your dress. He says um, your adornment should not be merely external, um, but it needs to be internal where you are developing the internal quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. God created men and women differently, and he created women especially with uh, key interest on the externals, and we appreciate that as men. But sometimes, you know, women put too much time on the externals, and they ignore the inside, the issues of the heart. And so if you want to win 
your lost husband to Christ. You're not going to nag him into the kingdom or preach him into the kingdom, but you outlive him. If your husband is a believer, you submit to him, you respect him, unless, of course, he were to ask you to do something that was contrary to the dictates of Scripture. And so we obey in the Lord. We submit in the Lord, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 both affirm. In other words, within the dictates of Holy Scripture. So if your husband asked you to do something that was contrary to what Scripture revealed, then you respectfully disobey. If he said, you can't go to church on Sunday, and you'd say, husband, I love you. I'll make breakfast for you. I'll have everything ready, but I'm going to church because God commands me not to forsake the assembling together. Yet wisdom might dictate that you don't go to every gathering that the church has because you're trying in the process to win your husband to the Lord. If your husband isn't taking spiritual leadership, say with the children, well, that doesn't change your role uh, to bring the children up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. You have a part in that just as much, though the husband is to lead in that. So he says fathers, not parents, but fathers. He could have said parents, but he doesn't because there's an assumption there that the dad will lead in that, but they don't always. But you don't say, well, he's not going to do it, so I guess no one will do it. That would be a huge mistake. So um, you pray for him, and maybe there will be a meal a week that you skip, a lunch, a breakfast or something, such that when you feel hunger pangs between when you would normally have breakfast and lunch or between lunch and dinner, you use that as an opportunity to pray or the time you would have taken to have gone out or make a meal or something, maybe climb into your prayer closet and commit this man to the Lord and pray about real change in his life. Many times wives are dealing with rebellious husbands, and they just talk to their friends about it. They talk to themselves about it, but they don't talk to God about it. So you fall on your face before the living God, and you ask him for his help. Rick, let's talk about the World Missions Conference. Can you give us a schedule here for a little bit? Sure. We've got a number of programs that are going to be involving. Tomorrow, as you mentioned, we're having our grand opening. We've got the Parade of Missionaries, a wonderful time with the there will be um, a bagpiper, there will be horns, there will be a parade of flags, and then um, we've got the guest speaker who is Todd Friel, the, uh, of course, the host of uh, Wretched Radio, heard here at uh, 4 o'clock. Then on Thursday, we're going to have a prayer breakfast uh, gathering for women, a brunch. Uh, they're going to have some wonderful speakers there. Uh, aside from your wife, uh, you'll also be hearing from uh my daughter, daughter-in-law, my daughter-in-law, your daughter-in-law, yeah. yep. Mm-hmm. So, and then you're going to be speaking in the uh, uh, men's breakfast. That's uh, at nine thirty, and then at uh, six thirty that evening, we've got H. B. Charles, the pastor at uh, the Metropol- Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church of Jacksonville. Wonderful, wonderful speaker. And then Friday, we've got, uh, as you mentioned, Tommy Ice, who is the uh, head of the. Uh, prophecy. Yeah, Pre-Trib, pre-trib. Research Association. Absolutely. Right. And It'll be with us Sunday morning, too. So lots of great stuff. Be sure to be there. 